It's midnight, the podcasting hour. belong to it now, and it cares for me in return, sheltering me, nurturing me, holding me close within its velvet embrace. The moon is rising now, clawing its way into the sky, a glowing amber eye that casts its disdainful gaze on the murky ooze below, the swamp that is my home. Hello, friends. PJ Frightful here, back and deader than... Sorry, better than ever. I've been thinking about those lines lately, the beginning of one of my favorite comic book stories. What a picture the author paints, huh? The all-encompassing darkness of the night, a warm blanket enveloping you, not oppressive, but soothing. And what about the moon in this vision? You know the power of the moon. You've walked alone at night, down the street, through a field maybe, on your own, vulnerable. The only thing offering you protection of any kind is the silver shimmer of the moon. You wear its light like armor against all the dread things lurking in the dark. That's the power of the moon, but not to the character in this story. To him, the moon is intrusive, invasive. It traps you in the open. It exposes your secrets, your sins, your shameful truth. The moon is your accuser. That's pretty dark, even for me. Hopefully, you're not like that. Hopefully, you're not as tortured and miserable as the main character of this episode's featured story. Your host, Ryan, he's already pathetic enough. He had to beg some other poor wretch to help him talk about this story. Let's see if they find any light to shelter them, or if they, too, are drawn into the darkness. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Midnight, the podcasting hour. I'm Ryan Daly and joining me for this episode is what Michael Bailey would call my semi-permanent co-host, or rather one of my semi-permanent co-hosts for the show, Mr. Ben Avery from Comic Book Time Machine and welcome to Level 7. How are you, Ben? Doing well. How are you? I am doing very well. Thank you for being part of this episode, the whole series, this podcast. I'm excited to start this off with you. I am very excited about this because this is actually helping me to, well, I I don't have to edit this, you know, (laughs) I I wanted to do a swamp monster kind of thing. And I still might do some things with comic book time machine with some of the other swamp monsters, but this guarantees it. And I can just show up. I can talk about stuff that I like to talk about and then turn it over to you and let you work your magic. And then 
I can listen to it. That's, so, that's what, you, yeah. get all, you get all the fun stuff and none of the work. I, I love do. It. And actually, that, it brings up one of the points I was going to make. And uh, for those of you listening, I will I, – first, let me explain the semi-permanent part to those of you who might not know what I'm talking about. Ben is a semi-permanent co-host because if we're talking about Swamp Thing on this podcast, you can pretty safely bet that Ben is going to be here with me. Of course, we won't always be talking about Swamp Thing, only every five episodes or so. And when we're not, when I'm talking about Dead Man or some other character, that's when Ben, you know, he'll be busy chronicling the adventures of Marvel Universe's television series, like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the Netflix series, you know, was that a good enough plug for your other shows? Yeah, sure, that'll work. Right Right off the bat, uh, I'm going to peel back the curtain for our listeners and let them know how we came together on this project. Uh, I mentioned back on the first episode that the genesis for this podcast came about slowly in little clumps over this past summer, and then it really ramped up, and the idea started to crystallize around August 21st. And right around that same time, the second episode of Chad Bokelman's Action Comics Weekly podcast came out. And on that podcast, I heard Ben profess his love for swamp monster characters like Man-Thing, The Heap, and of course... Swamp Thing. The timing just was too good. I'm crafting on the Swamp Thing show in my head. I hear Ben talking about doing a Swamp Monsters podcast the very next day. So I reached out to him, and here he is. Are you excited, Ben? Here I am. Yes, I'm excited. I am, because... I have – I think the way I referred to it on the Action Comics Weekly thing, and I've, I've referred to it in other domains as well. I have an unnatural <laughs> – I don't know if I would call it love for Swamp Monsters, but possibly close to it. I don't know exactly why. There is some – I've done some thinking about, well, what is it that attracts me to these kind of stories? And honestly, one of the things that we'll probably end up talking about is I enjoyed Swamp Thing a lot more before he was Alan Moore's kind of elemental god hmm. kind of thing. I, I like him more when he's a guy who's in this body. And honestly, we're going to be talking about this story here is one of those that just gets me because of just the kind of storytelling it's doing about a man trapped in just a shambling, muck-encrusted body. So I would never, ever call myself like an expert. I haven't read every single Swamp Thing comic book ever published. I've read a lot, but I also I do love Man-Thing and um, The Heap. I'm really enjoying reading through some of those really old Heap stories right now. And I have a box of comics that's just Swamp Monster comics. It's, it's Swamp Thing, it's Man-Thing, and it's these kind of one-off horror anthology kind of things that some of them I buy because the cover just has a cool-looking Swamp Monster. Most of those, if you buy it because there's a cool-looking Swamp Monster on it, the story is pretty awful. Uh, just, just a fair warning, there was one that I did just discover, and you... I think you used it for one of your like profile photos or something. Probably. And uh, and I, I just put a comment there saying there's actually a good Swamp Monster story in that comic. <laughs> uh, but I, I just found it randomly in a, a long box at a, a flea market. And I thought, this is cool. I'm, I'm going to get it, even though it's more than I would rather spend. The cover was so cool, but the story matched up. It was great. So... Do you know or can you recall where or when this fascination with these type of creatures began? I mean, is this something that goes back to childhood or? I don't think it goes back to childhood. I always liked monsters when I was a kid mm-hmm. and I was always into you know sci-fi and stuff like that. But the swamp thing, man thing, swamp monster stuff, I think came – Honestly, I think it came like in college uh, when I was getting back into comics and when I was getting back into comics in college and I started reading the writerly type Mm -hmm. of comic book people, you know, Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman and that kind of thing. And so because of that, 
uh, reading the Alan Moore stuff was like, oh, I, I've got to read Watchmen. I've got to read this Swamp Thing, too. OK, so I started getting into the Vertigo comics. But then at the same time, I was also discovering Steve Gerber. And that's where the man thing connection came in was with Steve Gerber. And then that kind of just turned into <laughs> I don't know where it turned into just Swamp Monsters in general. But somewhere along the line, I just started like collecting monster comics. And those were the ones that those kind of it's the kind of stories that can get told with a swamp monster and the shambling mess of a man and the, you know, the horrible, you know, and there, there's lots of different things you can do with it. But whether it's people reacting to it or the person who has become the monster himself reacting to it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it just it just kind of slowly happened right out of college. I mean, so we're talking about 20 years ago or so. But, yeah, it was definitely it was Vertigo that really drew me in. And then Steve Gerber's writing and Howard the Duck and Man thing, especially with Steve Gerber. But, yeah, so that's I I think that's probably my origin story as far as Swamp (laughs) Monsters go. I mean, I'm there with you in terms of like I always love like I always loved the sort of universal monsters and stuff like that. And I loved Dracula, the Wolfman, Frankenstein. And on the periphery of that was like the creature from the Black Lagoon. And I sort Mm -hmm. of lumped him into a similar category as these swamp monsters. And even though vampires were always sort of like the top of that kingdom, for some reason, I, I liked werewolf stories or wolfman stories. There was just something about, and you sort of described it like with the, the muck monsters or the swamp monsters, it's very similar, like this consciousness buried inside a monstrous outside that, and this this lack of humanity, the loss of humanity, of not being able to be understood, not being able to have that human connection, being able to witness yourself acting more animal and not being able to control it necessarily. Yeah, yeah. And and I at the risk of getting too psychoanalytical, you know, but I, I do feel like that's one of the attractions to those kind of stories. And it's not just Swamp Monsters, like you said. It's also the Frankenstein story as sure, well. Yeah, yeah. The the attraction for me being, you know, I think some of that comes down to low self-esteem when I was younger, you know, and and just feeling like I don't connect and I don't belong. Creature from the Black Lagoon you brought up. That's a movie I watch every year and I'm going to watch it tonight or tomorrow. I, I just love that story. But I started realizing why I loved it was like, I'm watching it. I'm like, that's me when I was an adolescent, (laughs) you know, like just off on the edge. The cool guys are there with the girl, you know, and I just felt like I just didn't belong. And and of course I never got shot for kidnapping (laughs) a woman or anything like that. Well, you know, you have to draw the line somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And the story has to go somewhere too, you know? Um, but that's one of those things where you start seeing yourself reflected in in the creatures. And that's that's the kind of creatures that I find myself drawn to. I, I, I do like aliens and the alien movies and that kind of thing where it's completely other and just completely horrible and horrifying. But for me, horror is more about you know what's in me and what's in us right. and, and not necessarily what's on outside. Well, my origin for these types of characters, and showing my age a little bit, my first exposure to Swamp Thing was honestly the 1990s cartoon, the animated series (laughs) and the toy line. I didn't collect the toys. I didn't really watch the cartoon, but I knew it was there. I probably watched an episode or two, and I was just like, okay, I like the way the bad guys look. They've got this creepy thing, but yeah, this, this really isn't for me. Eventually, I saw the two movies didn't think that highly of them. I was, I was, yeah. I mean, I, I thought Adrian Barbeau looked great in the first one, and I liked the fact that the guy who played Alec Holland in the first movie was Ray Wise, who was in Twin Peaks. I just <laughs> liked that fact. But I really, I never really thought about getting the comics. They always sort of seemed in, on the periphery. But about 
oh gosh, maybe 15 years ago, I probably I went through that Alan Moore phase where I was just going to, you know, read everything that he did. I read Watchmen again. I read V for Vendetta from Hell. And then I started just sampling his Swamp Thing and just instantly loved it. So the, the Alan Moore Swamp Thing was the first Swamp Thing comics that I had read. Uh, now, prior to that, in the you know '90s, just flipping through long boxes or back issue bins at the, at the store, I did come across what I think still, and this just the very juvenile side of me, but I don't think I'll ever find a comic book title better than Giant Size Man Thing. I know I'm still yeah, a 14 year old at heart, but that's <laughs> but uh, so yeah, I, yeah, I, I hear you, I hear you. <laughs> they knew what they were doing with that one. So they had to. I mean, yeah. come on. Right. They had to know. Yeah. But I, I loved the Marvel horror books. I loved Tomb of Dracula and Werewolf by Night. And when, oh, man. And I, I, I had a hard time collecting the back issues when I was growing up. But as soon as I found the essentials of those, I started diving into those. And it was the same thing with Man Thing. And then I ended up getting the Omnibus. I love those things. But for, for a long time, Swamp Thing, it was just, it was this weird little corner of Alan Moore's career. And I didn't, it just had this sense of otherness. And then about a year or two ago, I started reading some of the other Saga of the Swamp Thing issues that were published before that, like the Marty Pasco era and everything, mm-hmm. and really enjoying those. But I never read any of the original series until just recently. I was at Boston Comic-Con this past summer, and Bernie Wrightson was there selling Swamp Thing prints. And I wanted to get one, but I also wanted to get a comic that he had done. And I was just looking through one of the vendors, and they had this DC special series saga of the Swamp Thing. I don't remember what issue it is, but it collected the first two issues of his Swamp Thing run, the Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson Swamp Thing issues 1 and 2 bound together. I picked that one up for actually pretty cheap, got him to sign that, read that, and I was like, oh my gosh, I love these stories. And then I went, I got the others, and that whole series is now available digitally on Comixology. So it, it, as soon as I got these, I, I mean, I, I was like, I, I've got to do a podcast about Swamp Thing right from the beginning. Um, and that more or less brings us to where we are now. So, Yeah, now you mentioned the cartoon. I, I have to say, I did watch the cartoon. That was when... I was just old enough to feel a little embarrassed that <laughs> I was watching cartoons, but my brother, he loved, I, I don't know how many episodes we actually even watched. I just remember the opening theme because yes. it was, it was wild thing, but they were swamp thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, oh man. And my brother would go around the house singing that everyone's shut up, John. So, <laughs> so I do remember that, and I didn't have cable, so I couldn't watch the TV series. I have watched the TV series uh, about half of it now, and that's that's all I'm going to say about that right now. But God, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man, I, I'm sure later on down the life of this podcast, we might be able to explore some of those things. We'll, let's we'll do, talk. let's do it later on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> let's, let's, but let's a, talk about some good Swamp Thing yeah, first. Yeah, yeah, we'll get a few under our belt, and then we'll we'll do <laughs> our uh, our commentary of the movies and the cartoons. But uh, yeah. So the origin of Swamp Thing, and that is the creation of the character at the creative level, is pretty interesting. And by that, I mean pretty crazy. And Ben and I are going to talk about that after we review the character's first appearance, which was just an eight-page story in the House of Secrets issue 92, originally published in 1971. 
Swamp Thing was the first of four stories in the issue, edited by Joe Orlando, but readers didn't even have to get through the first splash page with Cain and Abel to get their first glimpse of Swampy, because he actually makes the cover of the issue. The cover to House of Secrets 92 is by Swamp Thing's co-creator Bernie Wrightson and depicts the creature standing in the window as a young woman combing her hair is about to turn around and see the monster. Ben, what do you think of this cover? I love this cover. I really, really do. I hate the cover, the way it's reprinted on my reprint issue that I have. Um, It's just muddy and yucky. Uh, And she looks like the girl who used to be on Wings. Do you remember that show? Yes, I do. If you can get a look at a a good reprint edition or, you know, the – just online, you know, just Google image search, mm-hmm. you get a good clear look at this cover. I, I really like it. It's just very gothic and very much, you know, just that lingering terror of what's in the night behind you. And he looks great. The image right there, I mean, that's that's Swamp Thing, you know. Yeah. You've, oh, yeah. you've got that kind of uh, V thing that goes over from his nose or around his mouth, and you've got the red eyes, and, and then this beautiful woman. And, and she is. She's just a, a beautiful woman. It's Louise uh, Simonson now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Right. But uh, she's just brushing her hair, just unassuming. And but you see her a, eyes tilted to the side like she hears something or senses yeah. something. and Or she, possibly sees something in the mirror. Yeah, actually, she does look like she's in front of a vanity. Like she, she, yeah. She may be, but she's not like gasping in horror. Like It is a beautiful, phenomenal cover. It's one of my favorite covers I've ever seen. It's actually been the wallpaper on my eye iPad for the last couple of months. <laughs> um, I just, yeah, I'm just so I'm I'm in love with this image. Such a, like this is a one picture, one image that tells a story. I, I don't know how, but he gets a beginning, middle, and end just in the expression on her face. And you're right. I was gonna say like she looks like Crystal Bernard from Wings, but she is actually modeled after Louise Simonson. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll talk about that when we get into some of the origin stuff of the story. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, it's it's a great cover, great cover, and you know. That's the kind of thing I was just talking about, though. I pick up Swamp Monster comics and like, that's a cool cover. And then you read the story and just like, that's not even a Swamp Monster. <laughs> um, but in this one, it definitely it delivers. The inside, I feel, delivers on what the promise is from the outside. And, and I don't know if we're going to talk about the other stories in the comic, but I'm glad this one got the cover. Yeah, me too. It's And it's also it's a cover that has been homaged multiple times. And I think at least twice by Swamp Thing. Like, other Swamp Thing <laughs> comics have actually homaged the same image. So, it's iconic. Yeah, it's, it's... It's iconic. Okay, folks, we are going to take a short promo break, but we will be back in a minute with the first appearance of Swamp Thing. Don't go away. A long time ago, on a spinner rack far, far away, from 1977 to 1986, Marvel Comics published comics based on the blockbuster movie hit Star Wars. Hey, I remember that comic. But Star Wars was not the only comic Marvel published based on someone else's property. Really? Tell me more. I will. I'll tell you much more in podcast form. Marvel's Cosmic Comics, a podcast covering Marvel's license publishing during the first Star Wars era. Like what? Well, Star Wars, of course. Of course. And Micronauts. Classic. Rom. Space Knight. Better than it should be. Shogun Warriors. No idea what it is, but it sounds awesome. John Carter, Warlord of Mars. I've heard of that. Star Trek. Motion picture era, isn't it? Godzilla. That was a comic. Man from Atlantis. So, Aquaman. Jack Kirby's 2001, A Space Odyssey. Wait, really? That's a thing? A human fly. What? He was a real-life stuntman. You're just making stuff up now, aren't you? I wish I were. And there's much, much more. Anyway, join comic book fan, collector, and writer Ben Avery as he explores the good, the bad, and the ugly of Marvel's licensed sci-fi comics. 
Marvel's Cosmic Comics, found wherever you catch your podcasts and on the web at comicbooktimemachine.com. From the shadows of a deep, dark forest, a beast, a grotesque, inhuman creature, rises from the muck. This monster, this swamp thing, is a barely humanoid walking clump of vegetation. It ambles through the misty woods, drawn, it seems, to a stately yet foreboding mansion atop a hill. For days, the Swamp Thing has been returning to this mansion, peering through the windows, watching the human drama unfold inside. Damien Ridge wants to toast the six-month anniversary of his marriage to Linda Olson, but Linda's not in the mood for celebrating anything. Her mind is preoccupied with thoughts of her former husband, Alex Olson. Her memories take Linda back to when she was happily married to Alex, and Damien was their friend. She remembers that for their first anniversary, she gave Alex a golden bracelet. He vowed to wear it for as long as he lived. Linda's memory flashes forward to when Alex and Damien were scientists working together in the same lab. She recalls with horror the night the lab exploded with Alex inside. Outside the mansion, the Swamp Thing continues to watch the golden-haired woman fascinated by her, unwilling to look away even as the rain begins to pour down on him. Back inside, Damien tries to comfort Linda, but she's so cold and distant. She tells him it's only the chill night air, but the truth is, despite her willingness to marry him after Alex's death, Linda does not love Damien, and when she looks into his eyes, she begins to fear what he's capable of. She goes off to her room to be alone, and Damien begins to wonder if she suspects the truth about him, the truth that Damien always loved Linda, that he was insanely jealous that Alex got to be with her. So jealous, in fact, that he sabotaged the chemicals in their lab, causing the explosion. But the explosion failed to kill Alex, so Damien dragged his friend's mangled body to the swamp and buried it there. Playing the part of the bereaved friend, Damien comforted Linda at Alex's funeral and after, until he could seduce her into marriage. But now Linda's detachment, her hesitancy to touch or even look at him, convinces Damien that she knows the truth, and that he will have to silence her permanently, no matter how much he desires her. Alone in her room, Linda cannot shake the feeling that she's being watched— Indeed, the swamp thing looms right outside her window, watching her. The thing witnesses Damien enter her room, always pretending to comfort her. The creature watches Damien draw out a hypodermic needle. Sensing the danger, and feeling that its life would have no meaning without the beautiful golden lady in that room, the swamp thing crashes through the window. Linda and Damien scream in alarm. With surprising speed and agility, Swamp Thing crosses the room to Damien, shattering the man's wrist before he can use the hypodermic needle. Then the Swamp Thing's massive, claw-like hands clamp onto Damien's throat and choke the life out of him. With Damien dead, the Swamp Thing turns to Linda, not to harm, but to comfort her. Alas, she does not see the form of a friend or lover, only the hideous monster, and screams out again. Swamp Thing backs away in despair. The golden lady he loves cannot return his love, and he doesn't want to cause her further anguish, so the monster leaves, returning to the dark shadows of the wooded swamp. As he leaves, he looks down at his wrist, wondering whatever happened to the bracelet that his wife had given to him on their anniversary, back when he was a man named Alex Olson.
Swamp Thing was written by Len Wein with art by Bernie Wrightson. All right, Ben, what did you think of this story? Again, this is iconic. It's classic. It's probably not the most original. And we can talk about, you know, who ripped off who as far as Man Thing and Swamp Thing. But I've read this story a million times, you know, okay, maybe not a million, but a couple dozen. Let's say that (laughs) where you have the monster, you know, comes and the woman he loves cannot recognize him and is terrified by him. But this is done with such artistic pathos. Let's put it that way. That's my overall, my, my, my general description, I guess, is the artistic pathos that the, the Swamp Thing has. He, Yeah, he's horrible and he kills someone. But if you look at his eyes, there's just so much there. And that last page, I don't know how you want to do this as far as discussion of, of the – the beats in general, but that last page is just full of so much emotion. Yeah, it is, and it's. And, uh, I, I'm not. I'm not in tears like I guess some readers were when this first came out that <laughs> would write in and stuff. But it gets me every time I read it, and I've read this you know a, a good handful of times now. Um, it just it, it gets me every time I, I read it, and I, I, I really enjoy it, even with the cliches that maybe some of the cliches it helped create, but also definitely some of the cliches that it was um, feeding into and, and drawing from. My first reaction, and again, coming from a, a familiarity with Swamp Thing that is mostly steeped or rooted <laughs> in, in Alan Moore's version of the character, what you call like the sort of elemental god, and particularly with the sort of American Gothic approach that he kind of told the, with the storytelling. Like, I was amazed at this first one. This is, you know, pure Victorian Gothic it like, is. <laughs> this is like like, the, like you get no sense of like you know sort of like Louisiana like Bayou country or anything like the customs and everything like he's a monster like this could be in Victorian England or something they're on a mansion in the moors it looks like a castle the man is dressed in like a stately tuxedo and waistcoat and everything and just yeah what Wrightson does with like and I've said before like I mean Gene Colan might be my favorite artist of all time in, in terms of the comic book field. And I love what Gene does with like heavy use of shadows and everything and giving everybody sort of softer features based on the deep blacks. And Wrightson does a lot of the same thing in particular here, the way he uses these shadows for the, for some of the images and just the mood, the atmosphere, it's just um, yeah. heavy. Like you just, Oh, you feel like you're in this place and it's, it's like thick and and i think the same thing is true not just with the setting and the atmosphere but the emotion i mean that's part of you know you know gothic is you know it wears its emotions on its sleeve and you mm-hmm. get the drama the torture that this creature is feeling at the end the pathos yeah those eyes and everything uh it, well, and- it's incredible yeah, it's the eyes and it's also the body language, especially the body language in the first panel on that last page and the second and the last panel, rather. Mm-hmm. That first panel, his hands are just reaching out, not in a threatening way, not even to embrace, just his his palms are, are up, you know, and, and just the way he's like uh, his shoulders and his arms. And he's just it, it's almost like he's pleading, mm-hmm. you know, come here, you know, I'm I'm here, come and and then that last panel where you just have the the silhouette of the tree branches and his shoulders are just slumped you know he's he's a swamp monster he's going to walk a little slumpy you know it, but he's he's walking away and he's got the shadow behind him and it's just this little small creature in what's really a tall panel mm-hmm. and and that's all Wrightson right there i mean He's a master craftsman and and that just the tone. This is one of those stories that you could read without the words 
and get a pretty good idea of what's going on and especially get an idea of the emotional plot. Actually, yeah, that's uh, like uh, uh, a couple things. I, I, I definitely I want to come back to that final panel and I want to come back to the body language thing because that's, uh, that's another point. But yeah, there are three different perspectives throughout this oh, story. We almost yeah. get three different POV characters. And uh, yeah, I'm glad you're going there because that that's the one. Well, go ahead. Well, huh? well, I was going to say, and they're they're different voices, different perspectives. Like from from the swamp creature, we have this first person narrative that is very heavy on the prose. And I I think with any other story, maybe with any other artist, the prose would feel appropriate because it feels very much of the type of story that they're telling with this this gothic setting and the the short stories that you'd find in House of Mystery and House of Secrets. It feels appropriate. But I think Wrightson's art is so strong in this one that you could almost take out all of Swamp Thing's narration and just leave the the art on those images. I don't think those word balloons or those... I don't think his narration detracts from the story, but I also don't think it necessarily enhances. With uh, with a few little exceptions, maybe on the first page, when you're just kind of setting the mood and the the place and everything. But It gives details, too. Mm -hmm. So it does give you details, like when he looks at his wrist, you know. I wouldn't have known he was looking for the bracelet without without him telling us. And that was something where I got to the last page, and I was like, did they forget the bracelet? Because that was clearly set up for something. When she remembers giving him the bracelet, bracelet i was like okay foreshadowing she's going to notice that he's still wearing the bracelet or he's going to drop the bracelet as he's walking away or something and she's going to have that ah duh moment where she's like alex it's alex something happened like there's just going to be that connection i was like that was what i was waiting for i was like oh they didn't do that i was like (laughs) so did they just forget did let me just like forget to come back to the bracelet but i was like no because wrightson clearly drew the panel with him looking down at his hand there's clearly this moment where he's like this is what I used to be. This is what I used to have. I'm not this man anymore. I, I I can't prove it. I can't. I have no connection to this woman anymore. I have to leave. So it's not forgotten. It's just uh, it's sort of. I felt like they were setting up for a sort of stereotypical reveal, and they didn't go that way. They ver- they went a little bit more subtle, uh, maybe yeah, more yeah. realistic. And I don't know if that feels appropriate. I I don't know. It's Chekhov's bracelet. You know, they, <laughs> they put it up on the wall. But the way that they use it is that that's a part of his humanity that's also gone mm-hmm. because he's, he's not wearing any clothes right. at all. I mean, really, the only part of his humanity that he has left is his memory and his thoughts. Right. That's that's it. And he is trapped in a, a speechless body, uh, a clothesless body. Which is one of the and, things that separates him from Man-Thing, and I want to get into that later on when we kind of yeah. compare the two characters. The bracelet thing, I like that they do that. I, I like that, oh, that would be my opportunity. Nope, not going to work. Not going to happen. So we also get her POV in some of these panels, and it's kind of portrayed. It's, it's in the it's second, in second person. person. <laughs> yeah. Which I'm okay with just because it, it clearly differentiates the two of them so we know who's who kind of thinking. And then we get Damien Ridge kind of just thinking more or less in word balloons. So, like, they, I, I find that they, they He's cram, expositing yeah. in first person. They, yeah, they cram a whole lot of exposition through these different POV characters and everything. And, again, I don't know if these are necessary. They're just sort of fleshing out. They're kind of, like, bulking up the story and, like, and making it a little bit heavier and moodier. And The one ding I would give the story is those three narrations that we have going on. 
And it, when you go into second person, that's a very difficult thing to do well. It's something I've tried because of Monster Comics. I've, I've tried doing second person narration before. It almost never works. There was one that I did and my editor was just like, no, no, <laughs> change it. We don't like this. you know. And, and, and it's very difficult because you're asking the reader to step into being that character. Mm-hmm. And it works best when you're doing a short story where you are asking the reader to emotionally identify with where that character is going because you're telling the reader you are this person and your name is Linda Olson Ridge and your mind is a raging river. So maybe if they had stuck with that and only done the the second person, but then you get in the midst of that, you get the whole first person narration from Damien and it's just, man, this is a little bit much. That's the one ding I give it. The writing isn't bad, like you said, but when you're doing any, any kind of words that you put on the page need to, push the art and and work with the art and not do the job of the art which is what a lot of a lot of times with um, you know Stan Lee's prose when he's oh, he's yeah. writing he's doing the job for the artist in situations where the artist doesn't transition well or when the artist doesn't show things the way Stan Lee would like it to be shown you know and so i'm going to add in how powerful this punch was because it doesn't look as powerful you know in this situation you need details you need exposition there's a lot of flashback you know, Linda has her own flashback. Damien has his own flashback. And then uh, Swamp Thing has his own flashback in words anyway. But again, it's of a time. This is definitely of a sort of comic with this House of Secrets, House of Mystery, um, all those kind of 50s and 60s horror anthologies. It's of a kind, but that's the one ding I would give it. The story feels bigger to me than an eight-page story, and I think because of all of the text. But to me, it never gets to the point where it feels wordy. It never gets to the point of like what well, even Stanley could do it a lot, or like Chris Claremont, where he's just like overwriting and overexplaining something that we can already see. More often than not, when he's writing, when he's really giving us a lot of text, it is for more of that emotional sort of describing, like the the kind of emotional pathos and the and the the mood of the characters and and the the torment that this thing is going through, and we do see it. But I don't think they conflict. I don't think they clash too much. All of the words fit the tone of what the story is. And again, of the kind of story that this mm-hmm. is, being in a horror anthology, eight-page story, that's right. difficult to write. That's difficult to squeeze a beginning, middle, and end. Right. And so that's why a lot of that has to be done in flashbacks. So you can do in one panel what would be a scene. But honestly, for me, the ding goes to the narration point of view switchovers. Yeah. I wish we could just follow one or maybe two (laughs) or go to a third person narration, you know, and let the narrator take care of things. You know, Abel, he's on the cover there. He's on the first splash page of the of the (laughs) the thing. He he could be doing some of that. And actually, I should say I, I say that jokingly because I do not like it when horror anthology hosts show up in the story on the page. I'm glad we got these eight pages without Abel showing up. He shows up in the other ones. Yeah, yeah, he does. I think you can tell the best ones, the best stories, stand on their own. And they don't have the sort of intrusive host character kind of like barging into them. So. Literally one of them, he shows up and he's explaining the ending. Yeah. He's like, you know, this story wasn't told very well, so I'm just going to tell you the punchline here. <laughs> and this is why what happened happened. <laughs> it's just, wait, no, <laughs> show us in the story. 
uh, a few things I mentioned. Okay, the last panel of the Swamp Thing story, and you mm-hmm. just you described it. It's this tall panel. It's more than half the page, actually, uh, the way it's set up. But it's, it's a narrow panel of the Swamp Thing just walking off. We get a full moon in the background, but it's sort of partially eclipsed by just the silhouette of this old branchy tree and everything. And there's this text box, if tears could come, they would. This panel, and I'm previewing slash spoiling something that will come much later in this podcast, but that panel is the same as the last panel of Swamp Thing issue 13, which is the last one that Len Wein wrote from the original Mm -hmm. run. That's how he capped off his original run in Swamp Thing 13. It's the same type of image, different artist, but it's the same type of image, and it's the same word balloon. So for those of you listening, you'll have to wait a year or so to find out why Swamp Thing <laughs> wanted to cry. So. The other thing, though, that, and you mentioned this again, the body language. Wrightson's Swamp Thing in this story is very different than his Swamp Thing in the series that would be picked up a year after this story. And I think it's because we're getting a different type of character. And that Swamp Thing is different. Like, a lot yeah. of people like argue, like, is this the same Swamp Thing? Like, is this uh, the origin? Well, it's not really. It's a different Swamp Thing with the same name. But, I mean, this Swamp Thing is not Alec Holland. It's no. Alex Olsen. His origin is similar but different. And he just, he, he looks different. This one is much more lumpy, much more sort of misshapen. There, there isn't as much angular, like... The Swamp Thing that writes and draws in the main series and that Nestor Redondo like, picked up after that looked like he belonged in, in, not necessarily superhero comics, but it was a powerful figure. You mm-hmm. could see the musculature, you could see how defined he was, that it was a character that was going to fight and rage against these other monsters and beasts. Like It had more of the physique that comic book readers would would care about and would identify with as the type of protagonist they're used to, especially if they're coming from superhero comics or that type of thing. This Swamp Thing doesn't look like that. The scene where he's crashing through the window on page 7, there's like a weird kind of tree-like, mossy-like branch. Like he's just, it's not like this powerful, dynamic, like muscle-bound, like superhero type of Swamp Thing thing. It's just this weird creature that's, yeah, yeah he, he, he has he has turned in knees, mm-hmm. you know, and so he's kind of doing that. And we'll talk about again where these where the image panels came from. But he has turned in knees as if he's a an actor trying to walk like a creature that that doesn't have the same musculature. Uh, he has the body shape of <laughs> it could be Swamp Thing. You know, if they ever did like a reality show with Swamp Thing, this would be the one where he puts on the fat suit so he could go out and see what it feels like to be overweight in today's America. Um, but he he has the kind of an ogreish body yeah. and, and less of a superheroish body. It fits again. It fits the tone exactly for this story, but it is definitely a different creature design. Not not a completely cre- different creature design. It's like the different Godzillas that you can get. You yeah. know, they do different things. They serve different purposes and came from different time periods. And that's that's I think what we're getting here. Um, On page one, panel three, the wide panel. Where it's just him, like kind of lurking through. That looks like the file footage of Bigfoot that it they does. always show on TV. <laughs> You're just right. Like, yeah, it, it does. I I thought it looked kind of like a gorilla. Yeah, you know, yeah. But, there's something very simian about. Well, the first panel, he's dragging his knuckles. So yeah, that's you definitely true too. <laughs> which I don't think I've ever seen Swamp Thing ever do since then. Like that's the only knuckle dragging I've ever seen Swamp Thing do. Mm-hmm. Maybe he does it later on in, in something that I missed, but 
What do you think of the visual design of Swamp Thing? And we can even compare it to Man Thing. And I think one of the things that they both have in common is their lack of a standard facial. Like, they both have these very distinct faces that mm-hmm. separate them from human. Man Thing has more of, like, his sort of protuberances, almost like yeah. three kind of, like, tentacle things, like, just kind of, like, hanging down. And Swamp Thing has these weird... Uh, I, I don't know how to how to describe them, but like the, the sort of... The, the, the skin flaps may form yeah. a triangle over his mouth. Yeah, you know, I call it skin flap, but... Yeah, I mean, they do a good job of making him human, but not. You know, he's got the humanoid shape, but then it's that face. Right. And then you, you also have, you know, roots and stuff hanging <laughs> off of him. And, and the same thing with Man-Thing, where... He, he's got, you know, the kind of plant things hanging off of him. And then he has people call it, I've heard people call it like a carrot nose, um, which the heap also had. Man thing has the carrot nose and the carrot eyebrow sideburn thing going on as well. The, <laughs> so it's those three protuberances and then um, just the muck, you know, kind of dripping from him. And I feel like they do a good job of saying, you know, this used to be a human. The human is the base form, like the xenomorph. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the human is the base. It's the foundation for the shape. It's the foundation for what this thing is going to become because he is one with the swamp, but they're taking kind of his skeletal form. Right. And that goes all the way back to Theodore Sturgeon's uh, It, which is um, something we, we do need to talk about sometime maybe. But yeah. Um, where it starts with – it was a, a skeleton of a traveling salesman basically <laughs> and the swamp kind of formed around him because of his will to live or whatever. But yeah, so that – and that's what you have here is it, – it's, it's almost like it's teasing him with his humanity. Right. Like you're, you're just about there. You're almost like us but not enough for that woman to actually think, yeah, go ahead. Give me a hug. Comfort me. Did you want to talk about more or less the actors that Wrightson modeled the, the characters of and how he, he staged some of the panels? Yeah. Hey, do you have the book? Uh, there's a book that comic book creator number six It's actually called Swamp Men. I don't do you have, have this book. I don't okay. Have, uh, oh, man. It's by Tomorrow's. And I came across their booth at uh, Wizard World. I would have been the second year I went when the first year I went as a creator. But the second year I ever went. And they had a huge booth, and they had something that was teasing this. And I was like, yes, yes, this is so cool. And then it didn't come, and it didn't come. And now I finally have it. Uh, It came out just last year. It has some of the photos from this photo shoot that they did. Bernie Wrightson, he played the part of Alex. And uh, Louise Simonson, who was then Louise Jones, Mm -hmm. played the part of of Linda. Damien was played by, I think, Michael Kaluta. Yeah, I think I heard he was one of the, the models. Yeah, me, here he is. Yeah, Michael Kaluta, who drew a cover for a, a comic of mine once. So nice. I'm just going to throw that out there. But yeah, so they're all getting together. And I guess they used to do this a lot for different projects because Louise Simonson remembered another one where she was dressed up in this medieval costume dress thing. And they put something on her head to make it look like the headpiece that they would have for like, I, I don't know, medieval princesses kind of thing. Huh. But but it actually has side by side images of the photos. It's so funny because you have these pictures and they're just in a, an apartment. And so like there's a clock on the wall. There's one picture that has a Christmas tree in the background. It's I, I don't know if it's actually Bernie or if, but I think it is Bernie Wrightson. But there's a Christmas tree in the background and Louise Simonson's uh, four year old daughter is sitting <laughs> behind him. And it's the one where he's got his hands out for that first panel on the last page. Huh. And it's so cool. But I guess they used to do this kind of thing a lot and they would just get together and just have a great time. And all the interview stuff where they're talking about that. Apparently, all the men just had 
huge crushes on Louise Simonson because she was just <laughs> cute and fun and just energetic and it's it's great if you can get your hands on the book or look, if you I'm looking at it now at the Tomorrow's okay. website. Well, the good. one bad thing about the book is that it's not as fun for me to discover new swamp monster things because they actually have a list <laughs> that I could just go through and use as a checklist and, and I'm tempted I don't, I don't want to though but I mean, I was, tons of interviews. It's a great book. I did sort of want to use that to sort of talk about the history of the, the swamp characters, and I mean, I'll be honest. Like, <laughs> I know I know the heap anecdotally. Like, I've never read a heap story. I know him as the character who predates Swamp Thing and Man Thing by like a couple decades, and yeah. that's really the only thing I know about the character. Like, was was it the first one of the Swamp Thing creatures, or well, the first in comics? Mm-hmm. Other than maybe some random, you know, monster in a horror anthology, but it was the first continuing thing that I know of anyway. The Heap definitely steals from it from Theodore Sturgeon, uh, which is the first uh, swamp creature in the the mold of Man Thing or Swamp Thing. Uh, it's a short story, but they did do uh, Roy Thomas did an adaptation for Marvel Comics of it. It's a good, solid monster story. But from there, yeah, the Heap was in the '40s. It was Airboy Comics. Honestly, the stories aren't great. <laughs> There's a couple gems that I've come across, but most of them are pretty standard crime stories that just happen to have a swamp monster stumble in. And then a lot of them are just very, very coincidentally, oh, that World War One German fighter ace, he just happens to be the owner of this jewel that we stole, or he was, you know, four decades ago, and... So now we're stealing this jewel, and oh, now comes the swamp monster that became, you know, that he became. It's just kind of, uh, yeah, we could do this maybe once, but five times? You know, how many jewels does this guy have? So uh, they actually, in one issue, they brought his castle over brick by brick and rebuilt it. And it's just kind of, and they happened to rebuild it right where he happened to be in the United States. You know, so it's like, man, I don't know. Uh, but that's the first. Yeah. And and Roy Thomas, when he talks about his work on man thing, that's kind of Stan Lee's thing was we're, we're on the swamp thing. Let's let's do something like the heap. And Roy Thomas loved the heap and wanted to do something with the heap. Uh, and so man thing kind of became an homage to the heap. Definitely. Um, I'm not sure how much the heap maybe had anything to do with with swamp things creation with with Len Wein and Wrightson. But um, it, it's definitely there as, you know, in the 40s up through like 52 or something like that. Well, I mean, yeah. certainly the, these types of characters were in public consciousness. People knew about them. And yeah, the story, as I've heard it, is Stan Lee wanted to do something else like that. He wanted to create this and basically gave the name. He's like, to, he told Roy yep. Thomas, yep. do this creature. It's a swamp monster named Man-Thing. And Roy didn't like the name. He wanted to change the name. He just thought it was sort of generic and also too close to other characters that they had done stuff with. But Stan was, no, Man-Thing, that's the name. Use Man-Thing. Yep. So Roy yep. kind of came up with the, the idea for the first Man-Thing plot, gave it to Jerry Conway to script. And yep. that was published in the first issue of Savage Tales, which was cover dated May 1971 and actually released in January of 1971. Now... Swamp Thing's first appearance in this issue of House of Secrets, also cover dated the summer of 1971, released in April 1st, 1971. Because of the overlap, because of the production thing, that you know, you probably wouldn't say, oh, DC or Len Wein saw that issue of Savage Tales and decided to rip them off. They probably would have been in production around the same time. But what Except. complicates that <laughs> is the fact that Jerry Conway and Len Wein were roommates at the time. Yeah, yeah. So that... 
I, I, I believe them, though. Both Conway and Len Wein say we weren't copying each other. We weren't really – I believe it. The, I have to. I, I've talked about this with the Irredeemable Shag, and his position is that it was 1970s. They were probably both high at the time thinking about these cool stories and basically just bouncing brainstorming ideas off of each other and then went to their respective rooms not knowing that the other one was going to write the same thing. Yeah, yeah, and and he told me that too when I, <laughs> I got to meet him. But um, the thing with where it's Swamp Thing, where the actual story came from, this is one where uh, – it's, it's one of those interviews in that book actually, this, the Swamp Men book. Len Wein said that Bernie was depressed about a recent breakup. And they were at a party. I guess they partied a lot together. But they went out and were in a car and, and just talking about ideas. And this is where the idea came from. That's that's where the, the story idea came from. Now, he had pitched this also to Joe Orlando. And if I remember correctly, he basically thought of it on the subway. He didn't have any big like, oh, I saw this and made me think of this and made me think of that. It was just he was coming up with an idea sitting on the subway and, and goes in the office and, and pitches it. And, and they liked it. But the the whole romantic take and and the the lost love kind of thing and the pathos then I think that comes from some of Wrightson's artwork I think comes from this idea that Wrightson was depressed because he just broke up with a woman. Mm-hmm. However, Bernie Wrightson doesn't remember that at all. Okay. <laughs> In a different interview, he's like, I well maybe I kind of remember something like that. <laughs> so and now all of those details are. Perfectly understandable, perfectly justifiable. And if you look at the first appearance of Man-Thing and you look at the first appearance of Swamp-Thing, you're like, okay, yeah, they're both swamp creatures, but there's nothing really similar in their origin story. Why is there this sort of controversy? Well, that goes into the second appearances of the characters. Yeah, yeah. Because... Len Wein actually wrote the second Man-Thing story, or what was supposed to be the second Man-Thing story, which was supposed to pick up from the, the history that Conway and Roy Thomas and Gray Morrow, who drew the first Man-Thing story, that was supposed to be in another issue of Savage Tales, like about a year later, written by Len Wein, I think drawn by Neil Adams, uh, and it was going to be in the Savage Tales. Well, Savage Tales got canceled, so that story... As far as Len Wein was concerned, I think was never going to be published, and I think he probably thought nothing was ever going to happen with Man-Thing again. Meanwhile, this Swamp Thing story from House of Secrets was really, really popular, as he said. Fans mm-hmm. really responded to this. And DC was like, let's let's do something with this character. They wanted to bring the team back, and they gave the go-ahead to do a Swamp Thing issue one. In fact, I've got an issue of Amazing Heroes Number 11, where an author, Mindy McAdams, goes through a history of Swamp Thing up until basically 1983 or something, like right around the time the saga of the Swamp Thing series was starting. She mentions in the article that the Swamp Thing story won the Shazam Award for Best Story at the 1971 Academy of Comic Book Arts Awards. Now, I can't find any corroborating evidence for that, but... The next year, in 1972, the first issue of Swamp Thing did win the award for Best Individual Story, and Ween and Wrightson won the awards for Writer and Artist that year. And as a subnote, that year, 1972, the Academy of Comic Book Arts created a new, a new category called Best Short Story, and the winner that year was the story The Demon Within by John Albano and Jim Aparo that Rob Kelly and I covered on the first issue, or the first episode of this podcast. So all of that was staying. So I think Len Wein didn't think Man-Thing was ever going to happen. He didn't think his story was going to be used. 
So he changed the origin of Swamp Thing for the first issue. Meanwhile, I think as he is developing that, that original story that he had done with Neil Adams gets folded into Astonishing Tales issue 12, which is a Kazar story. And it's just dumped in as like seven pages in the middle of this Kazar story. We get this Swamp Thing thing. So they continued Man Thing at the same time that Lenwin is developing Swamp Thing, this new series, where he changes the origin. And now it's Alec Holland. He's working in the swamps on this bio-restorative formula. Then we're going to talk about this in the next Swamp Thing episode. Yeah, but yeah, it's... like the origin becomes much <laughs> more closer to Man Thing, and that one is harder to say. Okay, it does feel a lot like you're you're basing this one off of what Roy and Jerry created. I'm with you there, 100. So. percent You know, I I feel like that the the first two stories they have similarities. They definitely have similarities. There's a there's a chemical accident, and there's a love interest, and they both end with the monster walking away from a woman. <laughs> Um, there there are some similarities for sure, but there's also – you could say that about a ton of short anthology horror stories that are similar. If they had just stopped there with that issue of House of Secrets and that issue of Savage Tales, no one would be talking about the similarities at all because it was just par for the course. Mm-hmm. Now, you're right though. When you get into Swamp Thing issue one, they change – it's like they said, you know what? We're just going to go ahead and say – Hey, we had some similarities before, but now, boom, we're just going to make it identical. And, and the timeline there, yeah, Astonishing Tales, issue number 12, where they folded in Len Wein's story, and then 13 as well. That was um, March 22nd, 1972. Swamp Thing number one is April 10th, 1972. And then Fear number 10, where Man-Thing takes over the uh, Adventures into Fear, that's July 25th, 1972. And, and that's where Man-Thing kind of gets his own his own place and for in the fear comic that's where uh steve gerber finally got a hold of him and it became something very special to me um but the yeah the timeline there i mean i i I wonder like what's going on in the offices you know (laughs) that that they they we're gonna give man thing fear you know and and make it his book because up until then it was just an anthology book right in fact the, the first issue of of man thing or first issue of fear rather was actually a reprint issue from Tales to Astonish or something like that. That's a swamp monster story. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, you got to wonder here what's going on. Len Wein definitely doing that second issue of Man-Thing, or the second story anyway. Uh, when that's where you find out that it's whoever knows fear burns at Man-Thing's touch, not just burning everything. But Len Wein, he added that to the, the Man-Thing mythos. There's still different characters. And if I were to like say, you know, who's my favorite – I like Swamp Thing, the character, better than Man Thing, the character. But I like Man Thing stories better than Swamp Thing stories. Mm-hmm. I think is how I would I would delineate that because Swamp Thing actually is a character. He actually does stuff and has agency. Man Thing does not. He right. is they just make, he, they make a big point in Man Thing stories that yeah he used to be this brilliant scientist, yeah. but he has no access to that intellect anymore. None at all. Whatever is animating him is not an intelligent consciousness, at least not to the to the level that we have. He is more animal, more instinctual. Uh, just he is sort of, drawn sort of force to emotion. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's drawn to- he, he's drawn to emotion, and that's what he's a storytelling engine mm-hmm. more than a character. And I like that about how he gets used, especially you know the Steve Gerber stories. But Chris Claremont did some good stuff as well. But yeah, with with Swamp Thing, he actually does stuff. He's actually running out trying to find monsters to fight, you know, and <laughs> like, oh, there's demons. OK, punch them, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. 
So there's the difference in character, but yeah, Swamp Thing's origin suddenly it's Man Thing. It's it's Man Thing's origin from Savage Tales number one retold for Swamp Thing. And and this is pure speculation on my part, but if I had to come up with a reason, I think it's because when we wrote the the second story for Man Thing, and then was told, oh, that that book is canceled. And I mean, he was just a freelancer; he didn't know what they were going to do with it. But I think he probably assumed no one would ever see Man Thing again. But I know what a good origin is, and I'm just going to repurpose what they did with that one, just use it for, for my book, not realizing that, oh, hey, you know what, these things are going to be published contemporaneously and in kind of direct comparison to each other. I don't think he ever thought that would happen. But at the same time, it's a retelling of the House of Secrets, and we'll get into it mm-hmm. next time we talk about Swamp Thing, but uh, it's a retelling of this story now. It's retold in modern time, mm-hmm. and it's retold with an action-adventure bent rather than this gothic romance right. and this this tragic uh, i mean there's still tragedy involved in any monster story there's gonna be tragedy but um the main purpose of this house of secrets tale is this tragedy this gothic horror it's a shocker in some ways but it's it's you know it's an emotional explosion not an action adventure monster comic right I think that's a good thing to think about. I I love this story as it is. I do prefer the more revised Swamp Thing character type and origin that we will get for Swamp Thing. But as a pure, like if they didn't call this Swamp Thing, if they just if they gave this another name, another type of Swamp Monster, this is just a beautiful Swamp Monster type of story. Uh, yeah. And I, I mean beautifully constructed, beautifully conceived from from the text and the language that Len Wein uses, and certainly from the art. I mean, Bernie Wrightson had been working for a couple of years. I think he started at DC in 1969 doing short stories for House of Mystery and House of Secrets, but he was doing a lot of like three-page stories, and they were okay. I mean, you could tell right from the get-go that the guy was good. He had serious chops, but... I think this is this story really just takes it, and you see what he can do, and and we will see a lot more of it. So, any final thoughts on this story before we go? I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> we could go on for a long time about the differences between the two different swamp monsters and stuff like that. But the bottom line is, I recommend this story just as an experience. I mean, we've you've told the story. You did a really good job telling it with less flowery prose than than <laughs> we'd uh, you know and and but I, I like I said I ding the first person second person first person thing but those words they fit you know and 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 they they go along well and so Len Wein, he did a he did a great job with the story. Bernie Wrightson is a master and just to look at the images and you don't have to read like I said to to enjoy what you're looking at here and I, I i recommend it very very strong recommendation to find a reprint and it's not hard there are a bunch of reprints yeah. out there and they are cheap it, um, yeah, it's, it's been reprinted in a tons of different editions you can find those online it is available digitally if you go to comiXology you want to i think it's only 99 cents might be a buck 99 i hope not it's just because the the other stories in this are <laughs> they're dumb. <laughs> they, they're dumb. Yeah, they, they they're simple, but yeah, they're dumb. 
This is definitely I, you're, well, you're paying for I, yeah. you're paying for these eight pages and the cover and the cover, which is again dynamite. And yeah, like you said, we could go on. We could talk a lot more about these swamp monsters. And the thing is, we are going to on on future episodes. Like I said, folks, Ben is going to be my co-host whenever we're talking about swamp things. And the next time we do that, which will probably be on Midnight the Podcasting Hour, Episode 7. We're going to cover Swamp Thing Issue 1, maybe Swamp Thing Issue 2 as well. Depends on uh, how much we can actually pack into that first one. But thank you very much for being my guest on this episode, Ben. Thank you for, for coming back and, and being part of this. I, I am really looking forward to this element and exploring these comics. Where else can people find you on the podcast sphere or around online if they need to find you? Well, here's the primary places. Comic Book Time Machine is where I talk about comic books, especially Star Wars comic books. And um, there's a couple other things I want to branch out into, one being some different Swamp Monster stuff. But that's not as pressing for me now that I actually have this venue here. <laughs> uh, the other place is uh, Welcome Level 7, welcomelevel7.com. That's where we talk about the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the, the movies, the Netflix, especially Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. That's our weekly uh, primary thing that we, we go through, uh, especially now with all the Ghost Rider stuff. That's been it's been pretty good. I've been enjoying myself with season four here. And then uh, Strangers and Aliens, where I talk about faith and sci-fi. And then you also can find me over at the Action Comics Weekly podcast, where I talk about Secret Six with Chad. And that's been a lot of fun. I think primarily because I don't have to edit it. I can read the comics and talk about the comics and enjoy and then the podcast itself has so many other people on it. And so it's, it's fun to listen to, even though I'm, I'm listening to myself for part of it. So <laughs> It is very good. Thank you very much again for being on this episode and for, for being my semi-permanent co-host on the Swamp Thing feature of Midnight, the podcasting hour. You're welcome. I'm trying something different for the way I address listener feedback on this show. On every episode, I'll mention the people who liked and promoted the show on Facebook and Twitter, but when it comes to reading the comments from the Fire and Water website, I'm going to cover the comments from episode 1 when I get to episode 6, the next random DC horror story. Likewise, any comments on the website I receive for this episode will be addressed on episode 7. The reason for that is I would like to give Ben the opportunity to respond to some of the comments about Swamp Thing 2. I'll try this format out for a couple of episodes, see how it goes. In the meantime, I do have an excellent email from Scott Rowland that I would like to address. I've also gotten a couple of iTunes reviews after the first episode, but I'm going to hold off on reading those until next time. Please, if you enjoy the show, take a couple of minutes to leave an iTunes review. Every review helps this show get noticed by more people, and it fills the blackness in my stomach. Anyway, here are the people who favorited and retweeted episode 1 on Twitter. Ange, Anthony Durso, Between the Pages, Bob Sally, Brian Mulvey, Cash Flag, a.k.a. Al, Codeman at Beware the Mat Man, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Book Insurance, Comic Reflections, Comic Social Club, Comics Tweets, David Gallagher, DC in the 80s, Deplorable Ombre, DS and RS, Ed Moore at Indie Comics Fan, Ed Moore at Teal Productions, Ed Moore at Marvel Bronze Age, Ed Moore Jr., Inigo Montoya, Fire and Water Network, Flanger Hicks, Greg Arujo, 
who, while listening to the podcast, was so engrossed in that first episode that he got pulled over by the cops for driving without his headlights on. Maybe I should be flattered. I kind of am. Anyway, The Hammer Strikes, Jeffrey Brown, Joseph Crawford, Justice's First Dawn, Keith G. Baker, KSC GSF Podcast, Laurel at Mountain Flower One, Linda Vickers, Longbox Crusade, Martin Gray, Paul Scavito, Peter War, Relatively Geeky, Rolled Spine Podcast, Scott Rowland, Shane at DC Dead Man Fan, Siskoid, Steve Goopel, Sin at Alias Scarecrow, Treasury Comics, Trekker Talk, Trey Walker, Two True Freaks, Valhalla 130, Warlock Thanos Podcast, Warlord Worlds, When It Was Cool, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Facebook likes and shares came from Aaron Moss, Abel Padilla, Adam Stabelli, Anthony Durso, Billy Lacasse, Chad Bokelman, Clinton Robison, Comic Book Time Machine, Corey Hodgden, David Foster, Gene Hendricks, Fire and Water Podcast Network, Jared Driscoll, Jeremy Gunter, Joe Crawford, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, Kyle Benning, The Longbox Crusade, Matthew W. Parmenter, Michael Lake, Michael Wagner, Mike Gillis, Nathaniel Wayne, Pat Sampson, Scott Rowland, Sean Emmons, Siskoid, and Steve Race. And now the email sent to me from Scott Rowland. Ryan, great first episode for your new podcast. As I mentioned on Twitter, The Demon Within is my favorite DC mystery story. I first read it in the Best of DC Treasury as a nerdy, comics-loving young teen struggling with then-undiagnosed depression, and it packed a punch. It still strikes me as the most horrifying of all the House of Mystery stories because it is so true to life. Not to get too political, but look at the fact that conversion therapy for gay kids is one of this election's issues. I haven't been able to stop thinking about that since the election. Governor Mike Pence, who is poised to be perhaps the most powerful and influential vice president in history, supported torturing gays in the name of changing their sexual behavior. It is unspeakably awful. And you're right, we could see the same thing that Albano and Aparo depicted in The Demon Within play out for some LGBTQ kids and other minorities over the next couple of years. Scott continues... You have laid out some ambitious plans for the future. Do you worry you're biting off more than you can chew with so many series at once? You have picked some good ones with some nice variety, but you may be keeping others from covering these series. First of all, yes, I always, always worry that I am biting off more than I can chew. Even if the plan is only to cover like two comics, I worry that it's more than I can handle. But to your serious point, yes, this is a big sweeping agenda that could easily get away from me. But there are a few things to consider. I could scale down whenever I feel like it. And I also don't own these characters or the right to talk about them on a podcast. If somebody, if anybody, wants to do a Swamp Thing podcast of their own, I offer nothing but support for that. I don't see this as a competition. I don't have squatter's rights. You want to do a Spectre podcast? You want to do a Secret Origins podcast? Go for it. Have fun. I wish you the best. Uh, then Scott offered his thoughts on some of the different rotating features to come. Dead Man. Never struck me really as a horror series until Mike Barron and Kelly Jones came around. The original Strange Adventures run was really a human interest series. Although I like Dead Man as an idea, whenever he confronts the Society of Assassins or Supervillains, my enthusiasm wanes. 
That said, I am looking forward to the coverage, and hope you go all the way through Strange Adventures, as well as his Bronze Age World Tour in Brave and the Bold, Challengers of the Unknown, Aquaman, Justice League, World's Finest, Phantom Stranger, Adventure Comics, where he was drawn by both Jim Aparo and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, and Kirby's Forever People. Doug Zavisha and I are hitting Dead Man's first appearance on the next episode, and after that, the plan is to at least get through the Strange Adventure stories and then reevaluate. Maybe we'll keep going, maybe we'll take a hiatus, we shall see. Swamp Thing. As much as I enjoy Swamp Thing, I kind of hope that you move through his series at a fairly fast clip. I am most looking forward to those issues that get the least attention. The Ween, Wrightson, and more issues get lots of attention, but the ones by the other creators could use some examination and commentary. Doug Wheeler's run after Veach gets a bad rap, but I remember it as being pretty fun. Fortunately, I can look forward to you getting there in, what, nine years? I've never read any Swamp Thing after Alan Moore. Uh, the Ween Wrightson stuff and the Marty Pasco issues of Saga of the Swamp Thing, that's what excites me right now, so I don't want to breeze through them. I want to savor those stories. So yeah, it's going to be a while before I get to anything as late in the character's publishing history as you mentioned. Night Force. The failure of the original series to catch on remains a big disappointment. Wolfman was at or near his commercial peak, and he was joined by longtime collaborator Gene Colan. How did this not get a much longer run? Definitely worth covering. I was not as impressed by the subsequent revival attempts, but you may as well include them too. Probably won't cover the later incarnations of Night Force. Once Paul Hicks and I wrap up the original series, I'll either replace it with a new character or I'll streamline the podcast so that there aren't as many features, thus getting to each topic more regularly. Spectre. Again, Apero is the best. The superhero issues early in the Spectre 60s run don't really fit with what I think you're going for, but the last couple of issues of it were all mystery stories, roughly contemporaneous with the launch of House of Secrets, I think. The Mensch series from the 1980s might be interesting to re-examine, but the Ostrander-Mandrake version from the 1990s is superior. Again, it may not quite be in keeping with your preferred theme, but it was good stuff. I haven't read much of the 80s Spectre series. That's one of those books that I'm still in the process of collecting, so I doubt I'll get to it on this podcast, not anytime soon at least. As for the 90s series by Ostrander and Mandrake, that book is awesome. I love that comic, and I might, might get to it. But that could easily be a podcast of its own, too. I mean, if someone wanted to start a show covering that book, I would be the first one to subscribe. Hint, hint. Uh, back to Scott's email. Phantom Stranger. The Ween Apparel issues are classics and should be covered in depth sooner rather than later. Seriously, cover them soon. I want to. That's all I can say right now. House of Mystery, etc., I am hoping to discover some forgotten gems here. I have a bunch of the DC Mystery issues, but nowhere near all. I hope you get into some deep cuts here. It would be nice to hear about some stories that I haven't read before. I suggest casting a wide net. I mentioned Is a Snurl Human from Adventure Comics 431 on Twitter. Don't forget Weird War Stories, Plop, and the Gothic Romance titles as potential podcast fodder. There's a Bernie Wrightson story from Plop that I'm definitely going to cover with Martin Gray on an episode next year. And I've also got a few issues of Weird War stories that you know, maybe I'll dig out for like a Memorial Day or Veterans Day tribute special episode or something like that. 
Finally, Scott said, One of the features I really enjoyed about Secret Origins was the podcast team-up approach you took to the different perspectives that came through. I am glad to see it continue in some way here. I wouldn't mind having occasional other guests jump in, particularly when there are character crossovers or just plain intriguing stories. Best of luck to you. Thank you very much, Scott. You are going to hear different guests on the Spectre and the DC Horror episodes, so hopefully you'll get some of that podcast team-up fix that you enjoyed so much on Secret Origins. Anyway, thank you, Scott, for writing in. I am thrilled that you are so interested in the show. Thank you, everyone, who supported the show on Facebook and Twitter. Obviously, big thanks to Ben Avery for helping me kick off the Swamp Encrusted segment. I am so looking forward to more of these episodes in the future. Next time... We go to the circus. Oh, there's that bell, which means it's time for me to say goodbye and thanks for listening. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight, the podcasting hour. You can find Ryan on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or send him an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is not affiliated with DC Comics and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker. Music for this podcast is produced by Neil Daly. Any additional music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, have a good midnight.